0: And please turn with me in God's word to the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Depending on how you think about it today, we're either starting a new series in 2 Thessalonians or continuing our series through Thessalonians, Uh, but either way, we've come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we want to read the first chapter together. And think about what the Spirit has to say to the church in these verses. So 2 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, and reading through the end of the chapter. And let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, One of the interesting things about the scriptures is when you have these situations where a letter has been written to a church once, and then a letter is written again. Um, It it, it invites us to ask the question, where have these people been for this time? How did the letter, the first letter meet them? How does the second letter meet them? How are they doing? Um, And that's always kind of a fascinating question, sort of where are they now? Um, There are documentaries devoted to that. You know, if you had a a band that was a one-hit wonder in the 90s. And people say, where are they now? What have they been doing since then? Did they ever do anything else? We, we kind of in, we're interested in those stories. Where are they now? Um, and specifically, when it comes to the Bible, we're interested in the story. How did the first letter greet the Thessalonian church that was going so well that Paul really was happy with and just said, you know, continue to go in the direction that you're going. Do the things you're doing. Just do them more and more. And then we come to a second letter, and we want to ask the question, how are they doing? How does this letter find them? Um, as best we can tell, um, and it's limited, but as best we can tell, uh, this letter is written about a year after the first letter. Um, and so there's been about a year of time between the two letters. And so we have here uh, a, a snapshot of how they're doing, um, how, the, how the year has gone since Paul last wrote. Um, and we see to the praise of God that they are doing very well. Um, That the letter has come to them, and the second letter comes not to say, you know, you didn't do the things I told you to do, you have to step your game up, but rather what the letter comes and says, you've been doing well, and we are so thankful to God to hear it. Uh, They're still not perfect, right? They're still a church after all. Paul will still have instructions to give them, but they are doing very well. And Paul in this chapter celebrates just how well the church is doing and thanks God for it. Uh, these, this chapter that begins wonderfully with words of greeting and thanksgiving and ends with prayer all indicate that they are a model people of God and to be encouraged to keep going in the way that they are going. Um, and so in this opening chapter, as we return to, to the Thessalonian church and we hear Paul speaking to them, what are the main features that we can see and identify in this first chapter? Well, first we see a picture of growth. Even though they were doing very well in the Lord, they have grown even since Paul has last written them. So we see a picture of growth. Paul also reminds them of the path that leads to glory. And that's important for the church in every age, but particularly a church that's facing the affliction and the sufferings that this church was facing. So Paul not only paints us a picture of their growth, but reminds us all of the path to glory that Christians must walk, and finally reminds them of the power of grace. That the path to glory that we must walk, we don't walk in our own strength, we walk it in the strength of our Lord. And so that's how we want to think about this first chapter together. A picture of growth, the path to glory, and the power of grace. We have a wonderful picture of growth. Paul begins with a very similar greeting that he began in 1 Thessalonians verses 1 and 2. And then he gets right into what he's written, and we just see this sort of effusive, overflowing thanksgiving for them. Uh, Paul couldn't be happier with the reports he's received, and his thankfulness for it just overflows in this letter. The first report was good, the second is even better. In verse 3, he writes We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, brothers, and sisters, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul says we always ought to give thanks because this is literally an answer to our prayer. Um, we shouldn't miss the fact, these are the things exactly that Paul had prayed for in the first letter. Um, he'd expressed that prayer in 1 Thessalonians 3:10 and 12, that God would supply what is lacking in your faith. He said, That's what we prayed for, that your faith may be increased. And in 1 Thessalonians 3:12, he said that the Lord may make you increase and abound in love for one another. Um, And so how is their faith doing? Paul says your faith is growing abundantly. Um, The the words he uses here kind of implies this growth that just like you're shooting up like a mighty tree. It's just wonderful to see how your faith is growing. Uh, Wonderful internal organic growth that springs up in this church. Paul is so thankful to read about these things. Their faith is doing well. And he prayed for their faith, and he prayed for their love. And how is their love doing? Well, it is not just increasing, but Paul sort of says super increasing. It's just, again, overflowing to one another. It's it's more almost than he could have hoped for. The the words he uses just has this overflowing, expansive character, like when waters would flood um, a field. It's just this idea that love is just overflowing. And it's not just that, that love is super abounding in you know, little pockets of the congregation, but what does he say? He talks about the love that's from every one of you for one another is flowing like this, that everybody in the church is, is growing like this. Everyone in the church is loving like this. Everyone is loving everyone else, each of you for one another. That's a wonderful thing to be able to say about a church. May God grant that that would be said of us, that we would overflow in love, each of us for all of us. Um, It's a wonderful picture of growth for which God gives thanks. And Paul knows enough to know that whatever faith has grown and whatever love has overflowed in the church is God's work. And that's why he says, for the wonderful work that God does, we ought always to give Him thanks. We owe him thanks continually, Paul says, for the good things that are happening here. Um, Faith doesn't grow like this apart from the work of God. Love doesn't grow like this apart from the work of God. Paul is recognizing this as a wonderful testimony to what God is doing by his Spirit. Um, And that's why we prayed this morning in our congregational prayer the way we prayed from Colossians 3 we want all of those things that God talks about there to be true of us and we know that only God can work that in us by his spirit and so it's a reminder to us if we want to grow in faith if we want to grow in love we ought always to be asking God for these things and thanking him for them when we see them developing because Paul is saying the work that's been done among you I boast about you wherever, wherever we go I, I talk to people about what a model church the Thessalonian church is. Um, Paul says we boast. Paul, Silvanus, Silas, and Timothy—they're all boasting about this church as a model of faith, as a model of love, and especially a model of faith and love not in an easy situation. Right? There's there's all this all this sunniness in the things that Paul talks about going on in the church, but then, you know, a kind of dark cloud passes over that sun when we read about what the church is suffering. We boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Um, It's a beautiful flower of faith and love that's growing up from this church, but it's growing up in a desolate place. It's growing up in the midst of persecution. It's growing up in the midst of affliction. And so it's not just that faith and love are super in the church, but they're doing it despite all the things that they are suffering. This was a persecuted church. This was an afflicted church. And yet, even in the midst of their persecutions... Even in the midst of their afflictions, their faith is thriving, and their love is growing. That should be a reminder to us about the strength of the church in this world, built by the Spirit of God and fueled by the grace of God. That even in a desolate place, even in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, it's still possible for us to shine like stars. In the sky. It's still possible for the church to grow and to thrive. I think that's important as we think about the persecutions and the afflictions that the church is facing in our day and may face in days to come. I hear a lot of people worrying about the church in that sense, worrying about what persecutions might come, what hardships might come, what, what afflictions might come. We worry about that for ourselves, particularly we worry about that for our children. Right? What, kind of, what kind of world are they going to live in? And it's a reminder to us that it's the kind of world where Christ is still King, where the Holy Spirit has not lost any of His power, and that even in hard places, in persecuted places, in afflicted places, the church can grow in faith and in love to the glory of God. Uh, This is a reminder to us that the church has thrived in difficult places, that the church today is still thriving in difficult places. It's a call to be encouraged. And it's a call for us to remember that this is the path to glory. This is the path to glory that the church is called to walk one of suffering and persecution that yields its way to glory at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can sometimes feel like when we are suffering in the midst of affliction and difficulty, when the church is suffering, when we as individuals are suffering, that it's some sign that things are going wrong. Um, We we sometimes know that even when our theology is better than that. Um, Even when we're, you know, sitting in our comfortable chairs talking about these things, we say, you know, of course, you know, we have to trust in the Lord and and through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's easy to say that. It's harder to say that when you're in the midst of the tribulations and to recognize that that's what God is doing. And sometimes in the midst of pre- present suffering, we can forget that that is the path of glory. And I think that's really what Paul wants to sketch out for the Thessalonian church as he moves through verses 3 through 10. It can be hard to tease out everything that Paul's saying here because he writes it in one long sentence in Greek. So it all is together as one, and so you have to kind of go through and tease out the things that he's saying here and to figure out what what is his point, what are the ideas that he's trying to convey to us. And what he wants to convey to the church in every age, particularly to this Thessalonian church and any church that's facing afflictions and difficulties in life, is to have a proper understanding of suffering. Because we might know conceptually that we have to suffer, but it's hard when we're in the midst of it to deal with it. And Paul wants to preach to this church and make sure they continue to have a proper understanding of their suffering. Because in the one sense, we always know, we always remind ourselves that it's costly to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And the the scriptures disabuse us of any notion that following Christ will make, make for an easy life. The testimony of the New Testament actually is is the opposite. It's very clear. When you you follow Christ, you have to count the cost. Because in this world, you will pay a heavy price for following Him. Um, That's what the Lord Jesus said to His disciples. The world will hate you on account of me. That the calling to follow Him is one of self-denial and picking up the cross to follow Him. That's not a nice image. The cross was not a nice image in their day and age. It was an instrument of horrible execution, a torture device. It's not a clever marketing ploy to say to people, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. That doesn't go in the pamphlet. It's not a good hashtag. It's not calculated to get people to follow. It's a reality, a reminder of what a calling to follow Jesus is a calling to. And we need to be reminded that means that when we are suffering, it doesn't mean that things have gone wrong. And the testimony of Scripture has to come back to us over and over again to remind us this is part of the calling. This is part of the path. This is part of the road. And Paul had said that to the Thessalonians as well in First Thessalonians 3, verse 3. He said, we talk to you so that no one would be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. And Paul said wants to talk to them about that because he says, I know that when we suffer, it's hard to understand it properly. But we have to understand that this is part of the plan by God's grace, that God is saying to us always as Christians, suffering will always be present in the Christian walk, but it's never pointless. One of the keys to understanding suffering in this life is to be reminded that we have a God who is controlling everything in His providential care of His people, that He's turning all of these things to a goal so that while afflictions and sufferings are always present for the church in this evil age, they are never pointless. They're never purposeless. And we need to understand God's purpose in working, that God always has a purpose for our good. Because there's nothing worse than being in the midst of affliction and feeling like there's no point. And almost everybody who's been in severe affliction and severe trouble has wrestled with that question and said, God, I know you must be doing something because you always have a plan, but I can't for the life of me figure out what the plan is or how you're going to bring good out of this. You know, in my years as a pastor, anecdotally I can say, a lot of Reformed Christians are solidly grounded in the providence of God, which is wonderfully helpful when you're counseling them in the midst of trouble and difficulty. But it it sometimes doesn't help answer that, I know God is doing something. I know He's a Father. I know He loves me. I know He cares. I know He's going to bring this about for good. I can't see how this could ever be brought about for good. This thing that I'm suffering The Psalms are filled with this kind of cry, aren't they? My God, my God, why? Why this? Why me? Why us? Why now? What is your purpose? What is your reason? How are you going to bring this to good? And we know that these sufferings are working out God's eternal purposes in our lives. They aren't pointless, they are serving a purpose. And sometimes they're serving a purpose that can only be worked out in the midst of suffering. There are things we can only learn through difficulty. It's one of the the realities of life that we don't really like to admit. Uh, We kind of want to bargain with God and say, you know, I could learn the same lesson an easier way. Can we make a deal? Could we I'll I'll learn about steadfastness under fire. Can I just get out of the fire? But you see what Paul is reminding the, the Thessalonian church is you are being built up not just in faith and love, but in a love that is tested. You're a model not just of what you're doing in yourself, but of what you're doing in the midst of your circumstances. Notice that he says, I don't just boast about you. I boast about you of your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all your afflictions. That this is what God is doing in you and in your midst. He's building you up and using the afflictions, using the persecutions to make you battle-tested. To harden you in the fight. Um, and it's required of us to go through these things at times that we might be built up. This text is a reminder to us to have a proper understanding of suffering. It does have a purpose. God is forming us through it. And that, that this church in particular was a reminder that faith is fashioned in the fires of trouble and in the furnace of affliction. That's how faith is built, like a, like a blacksmith making a sword. I don't know all the ins and outs of blacksmithing, but what I've seen is they take raw metal and they superheat it, and then a guy, once it's heated up, starts banging on it with a hammer. And then when they cool it down, he's got to grind it down and sharpen it. Only after that is that sword fit for being a sword. It wouldn't be, that metal wouldn't be of any use as a sword had it not gone through all of that. What Paul is teaching us here, what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand is that's how faith is forged. That's how steadfastness is forged, in the fires of trouble, through the furnace of affliction. And we know that this is true and necessary for us. It was true and necessary for our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We we should take time to meditate on what Hebrews 2.10 tells us. For it was fitting that He, the Lord Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Even the Lord Jesus was fitted for it, formed for his work in the fires of affliction, in the fires of suffering, in the furnace of affliction. Even the Lord was formed for his kingdom and his work. That's the kind of kingdom he's building. It's not a sign that things have gone wrong. It's the work the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. He was in the fire himself, tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. And he triumphed through what he suffered. He brought many sons to glory through what he suffered. It wasn't pointless. It wasn't purposeless. That's why the cross of Christ can be so helpful to us to think about not just as the means of our salvation and the way we've been brought into the kingdom of God, but that even the Lord Jesus Christ suffered terribly in this life to bring something good out of it. Right When we're suffering, it's good to look to His cross because there's no one who suffered more in body and soul. And that suffering was not purposeless, it was not... Pointless, and God satisfied his eternal purposes through it. He broke the power of sin and death and the devil by his cross. He set free his sons and daughters, brought them to glory. There is the worst suffering. There is the glory of the eternal purpose accomplished through it. And the Lord Jesus, who's risen from the grave, is hardened against all that the world could offer against him. You can array everything in the world against the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's been perfected through what he suffered, and he's stronger than it all. That's what he's doing through his people. And because he suffered, because he's been through the fires, he's been through the furnace, he can be with us when we're in the fire and in the furnace. Whether that's literally, like the men in Daniel, or figuratively with us in the fires and the furnaces that we face. He's been through it. He knows how to help, and he has the power to help. He reminds us that if he earned the kingdom through suffering, should we be surprised that we enter the kingdom through suffering? This is the way that he's working. We have to have a proper understanding of the suffering so that we might have also a proper understanding of where this is going. Right? Um, this is not just a sort of, you know, tighten your helmets, buckle up your chin straps. It's, it's a mess out there. Good luck. Right? Um, he wants them to understand suffering, but he also wants to understand them, the ultimate help them to understand the ultimate purpose to which this suffering is leading. We need to have a proper understanding of suffering. But we also have to have a proper understanding that it's leading to glory. That it's leading to glory. Because Paul does something wonderful here in verse 5. He says, this suffering, this faith, this love that you're showing in the midst of persecution and affliction is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is going to be vindicated in being proven right that you are counted worthy of his kingdom. It's a wonderful thing that Paul is sharing with them about how God views the people who suffer in this world. That those who who go with him through the fires, who are with him and standing steadfast, Aside the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what it costs them in the world, there's a time coming where God will come and say, see, I was right in saying they were worthy of the kingdom of God. Look at them. Look at their faith. Look at their love in the midst of suffering. You can see that they're worthy of this kingdom. Isn't that awesome? To think about God saying that of us? They are worthy. They are counted worthy Of this kingdom. Because there are two kinds of people in this world those who know God and those who don't know Him. Those who obey the gospel call of Jesus Christ to follow and those who won't. Um, There are two kinds of people in this world. And Paul wants us to understand that, have a proper understanding of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in the afflictions that we experience here and now, but the glory that comes hereafter what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to have eternal life, eternal blessedness. That was Christ's prayer for His church in John seventeen three. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And it'll be evident in the day of Christ's revealing what it meant to follow the Lord, and what it meant to turn your back on Him. There is a day of revelation coming. That's what Paul talks about in in verse 7, a day of revelation when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. I love that Paul puts it this way. Um, All he's saying is there's going to be a time when the King who is living and reigning and glorious now will be seen. It's just a change in going from being unseen to being seen. Um, It's a wonderful reminder that Paul gives us that Jesus is reigning now. Jesus is ruling now. All things are in his control now. We are not waiting for Christ to reign. Christ is king. And the day of glory, in a sense, is just making seen in this world what is unseen and true now. But it's Every bit true now, even as true as it will be in glory that the Lord Jesus reigns when he comes from the unseen heavens to being seen in the world. And what will happen when he comes to the world? Well, Paul has a word for those who've been afflicting the people of God. There will be the justice that will be visited on them from the King of heaven, not revenge. Vengeance is not revenge, vengeance is justice. When he comes to deal with those who are guilty of the crucifixion of the king and who've been persecuting his body in his members. He will come to work justice. They will be repaid with the affliction that they perpetrated. That's the perfection of his justice. They're repaid with affliction who afflicted you. Um, He inflicts that justice on the faithless and on the loveless. On those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Right, those are the opposite of those who follow the Lord. And that awful word that they will be shut out of His presence and glory forever. That is the worst part of the judgment. That God says, depart from me. To be shut out of His glory. To be shut out from His life-giving presence. To enter that kind of darkness is an awful picture. It's a warning to all those who do not have faith in Christ or obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And yet Paul's message is not one intended to warn the unfaithful, but to assure the faithful of the justice that's coming and the vindication that will be theirs. Their fate is going to be far different from those who do not know God and do not obey His gospel. What is awaiting those who love God and who obey Him, who love Him? It's a far different fate that awaits them. And the glory begins with public vindication. The public vindication of our God, right? Glory begins not first for us, but for our Father's sake. For all those people who said, it doesn't do you any good to follow God. What good is following God ever got you in this world? You're a bunch of fools for giving your life to this kind of cause. What is, what is the actual message of that? God is a God not worth serving. God is a God not worth following. God is a God who doesn't hear your prayers and doesn't do anything for you. It's the answer to all those voices, the voices that are rung out throughout history like from Psalm 10. There is no God and if there is a God he doesn't see and if there's a God who sees he doesn't care. It will be a vindication for God. God is a God who sees. God is a God who cares. God is a God who's been watching and God is going to take all things into account. Both those who've offended against him and those who've served him. The biggest part of the glory is God will be glorified as being the God he said he was. It'll be seen and no one can deny it. That's glory. Public vindication for our Lord that his name would be held up as holy. The answer to our prayer, hallowed be thy name. But you see, it's not just vindication for the Lord. It's also relief For us. It's permanent relief for the afflicted. What what do we cry out in our suffering? What do we cry out in our afflictions? Deliver us, Lord. Relieve it from us. Lift the burden off of our shoulders. That's what's promised in the coming of the Lord Jesus. When He's revealed, what will He do for His saints? He will grant us relief. Do you need relief this morning? I know I do. Do you need relief? This is the promise of the revelation of Jesus Christ for all those who love Him, for all those who believe in Him, for all those who follow Him. It's the promise of relief. To be relieved from the things that we face in this life. From the suffering, from the the affliction. Times of refreshing from the Lord times of permanent relief and perpetual blessing. Just as there's nothing worse than hearing God say, depart from me, there's nothing more glorious than hearing from our God, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your master. You are worthy of my kingdom. Counted worthy of this kingdom in which God will be glorified in us and we will be glorified in Him. One of the wonderful promises that Paul talks about here is that the glory of Christ will be revealed in us. It's a reminder that the glory of Christ is something He shares with His people. God will be glorified in us on that day. John Calvin put it beautifully, Our Lord Jesus in no sense reserves His glory to Himself, but possesses it only in order to radiate it to all the members of his body. Isn't that beautiful? God, Jesus Christ possesses his glory that he might radiate it to all of us, that it might shine in us and out from us, glorified in the sun. And when God brings this, when God brings his public vindication, our permanent relief, Our perpetual blessing. Is it any surprise that Paul says, and we will marvel. We will marvel in him whom we have believed. However great we think we've made it, it will be better. However great we've tried to preach it. Preachers have real problems with these kinds of passages because you say, the glory is great and I'm not sure I can communicate it. In fact, I'm sure I can't communicate. The glory's too great. But Paul even says no matter how great we think it is, we still, when we see the revelation, when we see the vindication, when we see the relief, when we experience the blessing, we'll marvel that this is our God. No wonder we can spend an eternity praising his name without exhausting the praise that's due to him. We'll experience that. Reality that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. God wants us to understand the path to glory. It leads through suffering in this life, but it yields a glory at which we will only be able to stand back and marvel at the, goodness, at the goodness and grace of our God. And if we had to make ourselves worthy of it, we would despair of ever getting there. That's why Paul, lastly and briefly, reminds us of the power of grace. I know it's dangerous to start a third point at this late hour, but it's a short point, but an important point, isn't it? If we had to fit ourselves for this glory, if we had to make ourselves worthy of this kingdom, Um, It would be an overwhelming task. It's a glorious future that awaits us, but we are still in the crucible. We're still in the furnace. We're still experiencing the suffering. How do we face the way through it? How do we make sure that we will walk this path? Well, this passage ends with a glorious reminder to us that it is not up to ourselves to make us worthy of this kingdom. You cannot make yourself worthy of this kingdom. And the good news is you're not called to make yourself worthy of this kingdom. It's a call that comes to us in this passage to believe that Christ will do the work to make you worthy of his kingdom. That the power of grace is sufficient to make you worthy of his kingdom. That's the glory of verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. That God would work these things in you by His power. This is not a backing off of our calling in any way. We don't diminish our calling at all in saying these things. Paul's reminding them here. They have been called to be resolved to use their lives for good. To produce that fruit that is the work of faith. To, a reminder to us that true faith is always busy. It's always doing things clothed in the works that are pleasing to God. But it's only by God's grace that we can do these things. It's only by God's Spirit and help that we can produce this in us. And what a wonderful reminder that when we are called to resolve to use our lives for good, it's God who will fulfill our resolve to do good. That when we are called to put our faith and trust in God, that God promises He will complete every work of faith by His power. So that by his work, by his spirit, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified in us. It's important for us always to be reminded at the end of this that it's all of grace. That's the message of the end of verse 12. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He just begins again where he started, right? Grace to you and peace, God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You will accomplish this according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, One more from Calvin. There is nothing here that is ours. It is solely by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that our life is made to glorify God. There's nothing here that's ours. It's all of grace. It's his grace grace that makes us grow. It's his grace that makes us able to withstand the evil day. It's his grace that will see us through our suffering. It's his grace that will see us through to glory because he who called us is faithful and he will surely do it. May he be our trust. May we know him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Believe in him and you'll be saved. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder of this passage, for the importance it sets before our eyes of the wonderful faithfulness of this church in faith and love, and that they were able to maintain that despite their intense persecution and affliction, that you saw them through as you've seen every generation of your church through suffering into glory. May that be our their testimony to us as a cloud of witnesses who've run the race and received the prize. May we look to them as the great cloud of witnesses, as they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who not only sets us on the path, but leads us to glory. And so when we are suffering in the midst of our persecutions and afflictions, may we remember that they are never pointless, that they are accomplishing an eternal purpose, that they will yield in time to a glory that is beyond our ability to imagine now, and even when we see it, we will only be able to marvel and praise your name for it. So Lord, sustain us with that hope of your vindication on that day as the God who is right and true, on the relief that will be ours from the burdens that we bear, and on the blessedness that will be ours in dwelling with the Lord Jesus forever. Thank you that it's your grace that makes us worthy of your kingdom, and may we continue to pray for it And thank you for it more and more. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.